Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello listeners, Zach here. This episode is a little bit different. I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Richard Cole about virtual reality and computer gaming in the ancient world a few weeks back. Although the audio is going out on the podcast as usual, you might want to head over to YouTube because we're trying to mix in some visuals for you. We'd love to get your feedback on it and whether you'd like to see more of this kind of thing. Obviously, it's a work in progress. We don't have the skills and assets of a TV production company. But if you're keen, we'll give it a whirl in the future. And don't forget that you can support us via Patreon. Loads of great perks from bespoke Facebook chats to free merchandise. You can tip us at Ko-fi. And we do have a merchandise shop. All the links are in the description. Remember to comment, like and subscribe and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Zach here flying solo on presenting duties today and I've got something that frankly is rather self-indulgent. It will come as no great surprise that I am a huge wargaming nerd. So I've gone and found a historian who expertise, whose expertise is in wargaming. I mean this is just absolutely perfect folks. I am joined by Dr Richard Cole who's an interdisciplinary scholar of ancient history but has a particular interest in things like historical fiction and digital and virtual representations of antiquity. He is currently part of a multidisciplinary team at the AHRC, um, sorry, on the AHRC funded project Virtual Reality Oracle at the University of Bristol. And he also holds the role of research associate in ancient Greek history and virtual reality there. Alongside that, he's working on a project entitled Virtual Antiquity, which includes an assessment of the way in which video games are shaping new forms of public history. And what really excites me is that this guy is also an advisor to the people who make video games, which is just like the perfect job, surely. Richard, great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Zach. Looking forward to the chat. Now, as we've said already, I do love a good history-based video game, whether that's Age of Empires, Total War, other titles are available. We're not getting any kind of publicity subscriptions or anything from those, um, the producers of those games. You've also got things like historically-based first-person shooters. Now, the fact that I'm keen on all of those things probably says far too much about my personality, but I was massively impressed also by my first virtual reality history experience, which was at the Tutankhamun exhibition. And for folks, this was just before lockdown, so for folks who weren't able to make it, what they effectively do is start you off at about 1,500 feet above the desert and then drop you straight through the desert floor in the space of about 10 seconds. So there is this kind of, oh my God, what's happening um, effect. But it's a really kind of visceral experience. Now, a lot of folks won't be wargaming nerds. So give us a sense of the history behind historical video gaming and VR experiences themselves, first of all? Of course, you know, it's a, it's a really good question and a great, great place to start. So um, we kind of have to go back to the sort of early 90s to see where a lot of what came later sort of emerged from. Um, and really the, um, the sort of origin of historical video gaming came, came about through um, games like Civilization um, that sort of instigated that kind of um, popular real-time strategy or turn-based strategy um, type approach um, to the past where you you know you, you control a period of history or, or a, um, a civilization you sort of 
um, were able to manage their, their, their rise to power. Um, so civilization sort of burst onto the scene in 1991. There were previous examples um, of sort of historical strategy games and, and other types of sort of text-based adventure, but but this one made a real a real splash. And then from then, um, and I'll focus mostly here on kind of ancient historical uh, video games, just because that's my my personal area of interest and the one that actually got me into studying the ancient world at sure. school and then at university to begin with. So had a big impact on on, on my own um, learning curve. But it, um, civilization sort of burst. Um, uh, one of the biggest sort of landmark games in in, in sort of um, uh, video games set in antiquity, which was Age of Empires, and that came out uh, developed by Ensemble Studios, and it came out in 1997. Um, and that wasn't turn based, but actually was real time strategy. So it, it allowed you to play, um, uh, yeah, in, in real time, where you could build buildings, um, create units, and and engage. Um, uh, sort of w- with other players across the battlefield, whether they were AI based or or, or other um, humans, and it it sort of really um, fleshed out what was possible, I think, with this medium because you could have this sort of rich artistic style um, that represented different um, ages, um, and you had this sort of um, progress type narrative that allowed you to sort of carve a, a history from from the Stone Age all the way through to kind of a kind of classical Greece era. Um, the popularity of that to in turn sort of spurned uh, a whole raft of games, including from the same studio, um, Age of Mythology, which took the same kind of approach to history, but but did it in a, um, did it with mythology. So you had sort of Greco-Roman, mostly mythology, but you sort of played it as if it was a kind of history. Um, and then that sort of, uh, there was a little bit of uh, Egyptian mythology and, and Norse mythology thrown in for the mix. So it was um, uh, it was sort of taking the style that, that, that had been discovered with, with Age of Empires and, and playing with it. Um, different themes and, and, and genres um, and then of course along comes to- Rome Total War in 2004 and that sort of um, you know is yet another landmark but this time in the turn-based strategy although it had some real-time elements in its battles as well but but that was interesting because although there, there have been lots of other, lots of Total War um, installments um, including one before that set in Japan um, Rome Total War was was and remains sort of one of the most critically successful uh, installments of the franchise. And I think it, it is interesting. This is why I like studying games set in antiquity, because there is sometimes a slight sort of difference in how they approach the past, how they um, make it playable that is different from more traditional, more contemporary um, uh, periods of history, like sort of the first person shooters set in the Second World War, for example. It's, there's quite a difference when you go that far back and what you can do with it. And Rome Total War did something very, very well um, in its kind of empire building, in its rich um, encyclopedia of information that came with the game, in the fact that you could also play the battles. And, and, and that was, um, you could you saw that at work in, in TV series. There was a, a series, series called Time Commanders where you, they used the game engine that sort of uh, that allowed them, the battles to take place and, and let people be sort of commanders. So the game did a lot. It allowed you to sort of um, fill different types of shoes, if, if I could use that metaphor as a historian, and, and, and to sort of play around with that. Um, it was so successful, in fact, that the users themselves modded it and, and made a whole separate game called Europa Barborum, which was um, meant to be sort of more historically accurate because the game sort of took a, a quite a, a, a light approach to its sort of original historical accuracy. Um, and I think rightly so, but but, but you know, it was so popular that the users actually wanted it to to enable them to really sort of get into the nitty gritty detail of who, who whose tribe was where and, 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 and what happened in the timeline. Um, Beyond that, you start to get, as gaming technology improves, you get the kind of um, role-playing games. So um, God of War comes out in 2005, and that allows you to sort of play a very um, mythic-based, but also quite fictionalised um, uh, sort of narrative set in kind of the ancient world, but sort of a, a more kind of sort of uh, almost comic book style approach. Um, and that that's very successful as well. Um, but it's still quite early on in the sort of role-playing game genre in terms of what's possible. So it's really not until quite a bit later um, that you get um, the Assassin's Creed games 
um, going back in time to, um, first of all, um, Ptolemaic Egypt in Assassin's Creed Origins and then um, ancient um, Greece uh, during the Peloponnesian War in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And these are, you know, sort of more than 10 years later. So um, there are a few games in the meantime that come out. Um, European Universal Arlis is another strategy one and there's Rise and Rome, which is a kind of role-playing game. But for those are less successful and actually sometimes criticised. And, and instead, it's the Assassin's Creed games that have really kind of blown um, the lid off what is possible today with kind of massive open world role playing games, free freedom to roam, freedom to explore, huge branching narratives and quests um, that also engage with history, but not only just history, but also the myth of myths of the ancient world without it being kind of a purely fictionalized kind of mythic experience. So, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, I've I've argued in other um, in chapter I wrote recently, it's kind of like a mashup. It sort of takes some of the best bits of the ancient world and just throws them together in a way that is only possible thanks to kind of new media today. So you just couldn't get that kind of mashup in, in, in other media, really. And it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting way of exploring um, holistically kind of uh, the, the legacy of the ancient world. Um, and since that, um, that came out in sort of 2018, you've got a, um, you know, just so many more games are coming out and, and actually taking quite a different approach. And so there may, there may be branches here that, that take us into sort of lots of different areas. So you've got more attempts to remake the Rome Total War um, kind of approach with um, Old World, which is another turn-based strategy game, but does it sort of turns of one year. So you, it's sort of much more about a dynasty than it is sort of the whole, you're, you're less a kind of artificial god at the top. Um, and then you've got things like um, Hades, which is a, a sort of dungeon crawler, but takes on um, the sort of mythic themes. You've got Immortals Phoenix Rising, which is a kind of slightly more geared at a younger generation, but it's it's kind of, again, draws on all the different versions of Greek myth to sort of mashes them together. Um, and then, of course, you've also got, quite interestingly, all the definitive editions of Age of Empires coming out and the remastered versions of Rome Total War. So we've come so far so quickly that we're already now nostalgically looking back to the um, earlier games as they've come out and, and their impact by reproducing them with, with better graphics for the hardware that's out today um, and for audiences that you know, perhaps sort of <laughs> have that nostalgia already, like us who grew up with these games and, and now suddenly you know, they seem quite dated when you look at them on, on sort of YouTube videos, but the, the definitive editions are uh, sort of attempting to, to account for that. VR, though, is quite different because just the technology really wasn't made available personally until sort of the early 2010 really and when the oculus um uh, personal device came onto the market so there hasn't been anywhere near as much of a a legacy yet in terms of what is possible with vr and history however there's already been a great str great strides have already been made in terms of its um, utility and, and mostly what it's been used for is to reconstruct ancient sites and kind of facilitate tours around them. Um, so you mentioned the the, the, the brilliant um, VR exhibit for Tutankhamun, but there's also been a, a raft of, of these for, for Rome in particular. So you've got um, virtual Rome, sort of 3D models, you've got VR Rome, you've got Rome Reborn, you've got the, the Sodomas VR creations that sort of take individual buildings and, and let you run or sort of walk through them. But these are not games as such, um, they're more kind of, yeah, as I said, reconstructions that you can visit. So it's it's trying to sort of take take the user away from that kind of ruined, um, quite limited, you have to use your imagination a lot when you're walking around ancient sites often, and, and, and the VR sort of just takes you into another world entirely by presenting you with a the possible version, a real version of, 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 of what, um, say, the Colosseum would have looked like um, fully reconstructed or what an ancient Greek theatre would have looked like fully reconstructed. Um, more recently, though, VR has taken a kind of um, uh, a slight shift away from that towards documentary um, and sort of experiential um, creation. So this is where I think there's quite an interesting um, uh, there's interesting possibilities, and it's what we're doing on the VRO project, where you, you use VR as a kind of sort of filmic documentary style mode, but you allow for some interactivity. Um, so you get a kind of halfway house between the freedoms we're, we're used to now in games and the kind of overall viewpoint that you get from a kind of 360 degree video or a VR creation of a site. Um, and, and this is where sort of VR yeah, has, has a lot of um, scope to grow, I think. There are so many directions that we could take this in. Um, 
I mean, <laughs> you mentioned Age of Empires. I was five in 1997 when uh, AOE came out for the first time. Um, so that will probably have just made a number of our listeners feel really quite old. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, it, it's funny how, certainly for me, this is sort of, it's always been there. You know, I've always known about the, the Age of Empires franchise, going around friends' houses and, and playing it on, on their machines and so on. Um, and, and you mentioned Rome Total War, which, as you say, was a bit of a game changer. Yes, you have that turn-based element in contrast to Age of Empires, but the fact that you could kind of be parachuted into battle was something else entirely. And yes, okay, there'd been um, predecessors to Rome in, in the form of Shogun and um, the first medieval game. Um, it, it's really interesting also that you pick up on that idea of remastering because that was something that was quite big in lockdown all of these um game creation studios bringing them out in what i thought was quite a savvy business move because video gaming had a kind of explosion when people didn't have much else to do in lockdown um and so yeah the, the fact that they've regenerated these things why do you think that the nostalgia element is there is this because for folks like me you know, it's going back to our childhood. It's it's the good old days, inverted commas, of gaming when certainly the worlds were less complex than they are now. So if you look at the latest Rome Total War, because there's a second game, that's much more complex and that puts you into a kind of quasi-political quagmire, or at least it endeavours to, which wasn't really there in the first one. So is it that folks are interested in going back to the simplicity and so the games have become too complex or is it just the whole you know, wasn't this great? Weren't we all blown away by what we could do back then in comparison to what we can do now? That's a, it's a brilliant question. I think you've touched on, on many of the elements that are in play there. I think we can look at it from a business model, certainly, and it is a savvy one, and it means they don't have to develop new games, and it's just about really updating. I mean, you know, they call them remastered, definitive editions. The remaster is probably the much more honest of what they're doing. Um and I think that the, the explosion in gaming during the pandemic probably helped to spur some of those decisions, whether or not they were in the timeline. But I think from the user perspective, it is a, a much more interesting question. Um, you do get, if you start to mine the comment threads, the forums, a real, a real sense of nostalgia. Um, I think because of the speed of technology, technological change, and um, we can certainly come back to this, this later, I think I'll touch on it later, but it's, so much has happened so quickly when you look at sort of just how Age of Empires, the original game, was marketed, what it came with, what you, hardware it used, the sort of all the material paratext that came with it. And then you look at what you can do now with just a digital download code um, and how everything is subsumed within the game itself. There is a real um, shift there that's happened in such a short space of time that I think people do look back with a, a quite you know, rich sense of nostalgia in a way that perhaps hasn't happened or would take longer in, in, in any other sort of um, example. And so, yes, these are definitive for people at any age, whether they started in their gaming experience with this or whether they sort of realised what was possible as these games came out. And I think that that's certainly playing a part. Um, I also think that, yeah, you're right to pick up on the, the complexity because modern games have this sense of you have to do everything. And more than that, they also often throw the user um, into a world of microtransactions, into grinding excessively for gear so they can level up, so they can move through the game. And Assassin's Creed Odyssey is certainly susceptible to some of that. Um, other games even more so. And I think that there is a pushback against some of that. And you can see it in the way that indie developers are developing games that actually look like the original games that came out in the early 90s. You know, there's a, there's a, you know, a very clear choice to do that against the kind of hyper-realism that we're getting in RPGs, which is very enjoyable to play and really rich. But I think there is some sense of a pushback because it's getting closer and closer to, to looking real. And, and, and you know, you get this in cinema too, where you, you get a sort of a, a nostalgia throwback to, to black and white film or to silent film. And that's definitely happened more recently. But but again, there's a much longer time span there at play, whereas here there's a much shorter one. But, but because of the sort of real impact, I think that some of these games had, when they first came out, there, there is this sense that gaming companies are, are, are not just doing a savvy business model in terms of not having to develop new games and going back to their old portfolio, but also that they are pay, pay, sort of feeding into that um, sense that, that, that players are looking for um, something slightly different than the kind of mass market AAA games that are, that are coming out. 
Do you see a crossover also with the wargaming market? And I'm thinking here of, again, nerd, not even apologetic about it, but, you know, things like warpaint modeling and so on. Um, and, you know, that, that's vast in itself. So not necessarily the Warhammer element, although, you know, if folks wanted to indulge in Warhammer, there's now a, a Warhammer Total War or many Warhammer Total War type games. But folks do an equivalent for, if, if our listeners aren't aware, for history. So you get Napoleonic-based figures, you get ancient history-based figures, and you paint them and then you um, have whole sets of rules and you meet up with friends and you battle one another with your armies. Um, do you see a crossover? So, you know, was this kind of the, the, the nature behind what we see in certainly the military history-style games kind of something that was born out of the model-based system? Absolutely. I think the, the board gaming um, uh, definitely had a, a really strong impact on um, early and continues to, um, on, on early video, video games, but continues to throughout how they're sort of represented. I mean, you only have to look at the Age of Empires um kind of paratex and their technology trees and the units you could get that look so deceptively similar to you know sort of board gaming manuals I mean you think of risk here and other stuff like that there is a sense that the same kind of calculations actually even not just the representation element but the actual sort of mathematical calculations of who wins in what round and, and everything that is embedded in these early games and, and sometimes they actually provided you with that information um, nowadays it's all you know, absolutely encoded and, and hidden behind um, very flashy visuals but but I think there is a very strong crossover there um, and what's quite interesting is there's also a crossover between historical novels and, and that kind of representational style in terms of its um, sort of cover art in terms of its paratext so sort of um, you know historical notes you get that in the encyclopedia of Rome Total War and then you get crossovers with historical reenactments so from this time it's a simulation a virtual one rather than uh, in person one of course historical reenactments for the ancient world uh, remain quite popular so there's I think games are able to draw on audiences from a vast array of previous types of historical experiences and, and merge them in, in, in one space and, and, and then sort of just to build on that. And at what point do folks like yourselves become involved in that process of creating these experiences whether it be virtual reality or whether it be video games do people come to you wanting your help in, in shaping the whole of the virtual world? Or are they kind of specifically interested in particular facts? Is there a kind of a sense almost that history gets in the way and that actually, you know, let's face it, the medium is to entertain, that's its purpose. And so as you sometimes see with films, some directors are, are very interested in creating as realistic an environment as possible, far more interested in giving you a flavor of the history but then ultimately pushing forward the storyline, which is there to entertain. So I'm interested both in, in what your involvement, your input is in that process, but also what um, the, these people who are coming to you are actually looking for when they ask for your assistance. There's two great strands and they're absolutely interrelated. So I think um, just to sort of break it down, I think there's, there's three main ways in which um, historians get involved in, in games and it's it's similar to film and, and the sort of impact that they can have there but it's it's subtly different um, I think the first way is, is simply through publications um, and you know, there's a recent example here I can draw on with um, Total War Troy which was um, one of the latest installments um, set in the ancient world it, it came out in 2020 uh, from the Total War series but it's um, quite interesting because it takes the historical sort of <laughs> background of the to of the possible Trojan War and and so then makes it as if it happened historically I mean it, it obviously sort of frames it this is based on on, on myth and, and, and on oral storytelling and on epic but there's definitely a, a sense that they're sort of using the same kind of mechanics as, as Rome Total War to, to give you a sort of an ability to play the Bronze Age as they did um sort of the the third century um BCE but it's um in that one, the developers actually acknowledged that they used a couple of um, archaeologists' sort of introductions to the Bronze Age and their other publications to in inform their building of the game. What was quite interesting about this is that they also then got in touch with the historians and the archaeologists that wrote those things and talked to them, but almost after the fact. So it was kind of almost confirmation, you know, have we got roughly this kind of stuff right? You know, what do you think about this? We've, we've been inspired by X. Um, so that's kind of you know, very much developer-led 
um, and that tends to be quite normal. You do get a quite an interesting hybrid though, where there is a slightly more collaboration. And this, um, I, I think a good example is, is Assassin's Creed Odyssey because they actually had, or still have um, a, a, an academic on their payroll. So there's an actual member of staff there specifically who has the skills and the expertise to understand the periods in which the game is going to be set. And they go and do the sort of original research on that and then provide that to the um, developers who go, go forward with the information they want. There is still very much a sense that that is developer-led. It may be collaborative, but only in the sense that the historian is there to provide real-time input rather than top-down direction. So the third way is basically what I just said, top-down direction, but from a kind of academic-led perspective. So that's where you may either design a game yourself or as has happened, there's been a couple of simulations built about how, say, Roman patronage might have worked. And that's quite interesting because you can sort of run a simulation and just see what happens. And, and that can be an experiment as much as a, trying to sort of um, work it out from, from reading the, the sources. Um, there's also been cases where academics have worked and, uh, with gaming companies to develop either quite small-scale simulations, reconstructions, as we've already mentioned with VR, or indeed what we're trying to do with the Virtual Reality Oracle project, where we're actually creating an experience um, inspired by the history um, of um, the mid-fifth century um, BCE in, in, in Greece. And, and then that's um, very much led by us, but we are collaborating with the VR company, the gaming company, who are also providing their creative input and ideas to help shape that experience. So, so there's definitely a sense that the, this can work in various ways, um, but they're kind of the overall um, approaches that, that, that are taken. Um, it's definitely a growing area. There's now companies that actually just hire historians to then sort of farm them out to, to gaming developers interested in, in hiring their services. So there's, there's um, it's definitely a growing market and is, like I say, slightly different to, to film, um, probably because these, these modern games are just enormous. And actually Assassin's Creed Odyssey is another good example because they didn't just have a, a historian on board for kind of the, the architecture or the, the narrative storylines or something, but they also farmed out their music, for example, and their music was developed by um, a, a team in Greece and, and they in turn collaborated with um, other experts to, to get the sort of Greek, um, um, ancient Greek texts that they wanted to use as for sea shanties, for example. So you start to get these really interesting branches into different areas of expertise in these games that are very much not led at the top necessarily, but, but can actually draw on expertise in all sorts of different ways. Um, and the final thing I want to say about that, and, and this kind of connects to your next point, is that often not it is entertainment that, that drives these things, but there's certainly a sense that games are blurring that with education. Um, and that doesn't that does not have to have to be seen in any kind of negative um, framework because I think historical fictions in general often are, especially by academic communities that are uh, sort of still wedded to different ideas of what history is. Um, and you know, you see this with 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 everyone from people like Simon Sharma saying that you know oh, you can't have people reading Hilary Mantel because they come and thinking it's absolutely true. And you know it, these are really sort of jaded perspectives to take, I think, because it, it misses the fact that you know we've been engaging with history in various forms that include fictionalized versions for you know forever, basically. And the history itself is built on those foundations. But that's that's a, a whole other podcast. But um, the, the 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 point I was getting to was that you. Um, with, with game developers, you have the interesting fact that they have to sort of work out how the mechanics are going to work, not just storytelling, but also how the mechanics. And sometimes those mechanics are worked out first, and then history is kind of bolted on. Um, and again, this is not, you don't have to think of this in any kind of jaded way. It's just quite interesting because uh, this happened with Age of Empires, for example, you work out the mechanic and then you go, right, how do we explain that historically? And sometimes the explanations you can come up with are really interesting um, and they provide a really rich way of understanding how something like a transition away from polytheism towards monotheism happened in the ancient world and how that can be facilitated with a game mechanic. Um, so that's another way that you sort of expertise can get sort of fed into the, the process. It's not just around the, the visuals and the storytelling, but also how the actual mechanics can work. Um, and games then become very self-referential with things like Assassin's Creed, obviously having Spartan kick dynamics that you know, ate back to 300, the film, which apes back in turn to um, comic book material. So you start getting some quite interesting um, self-reflective um, processes at work. But in terms of how um, your second question, sort of how that, 
all relates to how users experience history and, and the impact that can have. I do think there's um, a lot of work to be done here because there's an enormous quantity of user-generated material now that actually can help us to understand some of that impact and how users are navigating what they perceive of as history or or, or how that interrelates. And I think that there's there's um, games are facilitating that in turn with things like the discovery mode in the Assassin's Creed franchise, where you can actually take an educational tour that's quite separate from the sort of you know fighting world of the, the main game. And that's been used in classrooms. And you've got the encyclopedias in Total War, which are incredibly rich and detailed. Um, so there's there's a lot of crossover between entertainment and education. And, and one of the ways of trying to pick that apart from a user perspective is just to see what what, <laughs> what users have said. And, and you do get some really interesting threads on Facebook, on Twitter, on forums, um, seeing how people engage with, with, with that material. I want to start talking about your role and, and work in VR, though, because I know that's, that's a, a lot of um, what you're involved in at the moment. So... I mean, we're talking about the educational aspect. Let's talk about VR from an educational perspective then. What does it have the potential to tell us about the past? Ah, so it's a really good um, area to explore because I think it, it is similar to the educational perspective that video games have, but it's different again, precisely because of that. It has that different history as we fleshed out at the start. It's, it's being used for different purposes. So right up front, it has mostly been about reconstructing ancient sites. And that is... Obviously, there is a user-generated element there, but actually a lot of those reconstructions came about precisely because academics were interested in asking questions about how ancient Rome looked, how it might have been used, how people might have walked through it. Um, and all those sorts of questions are very, very difficult to ask of a 3D model. So, sorry, of a, a 2D um, floor plan. And, and yeah, this, uh, there was a brilliant talk by a guy who built a 3D, uh, Matthew Nichols, um, who built a 3D model of, of Rome. Um, and he sort of you know, pointed out how archaeologists and historians have used different models you know, throughout time um, to try and understand space. But it's only recently it's been possible to, to actually you know, quite easily, in many ways, reconstruct space in three dimensions and then explore it. Um, so in terms of education, I think we can split this here into research. So there's definitely research components and capacity for VR, but there is also then in turn an educational perspective. So you can build the VR models uh, or the 3D models, and you can then go into them and, and ask questions of them, or you can use them as outreach tools to let students go in and wander and, and explore. And you know, museums have absolutely taken this on board and you can get lots of these little sort of everything from mini tiny exhibits that you can use alongside seeing some relics or some, some artifacts and as well as the sort of full full-blown kind of blockbuster experiences that come along with the, the massive um uh exhibitions on on, on large sort of um, topics but just going back to the sort of um what VR can actually do itself. So it doesn't just reconstruct sites and transform data, therefore, into something that you can actually sort of see and even, you know, in inverted commas, touch. Um, but it allows interactions and explorations that aren't even possible in the real, real world. So you can reconstruct buildings that no longer exist or have been damaged irreversibly, and that's happened quite recently. Um, or you can test ideas. You can ask questions about buildings that, as I said, were not possible with just floor plans. Um, so you can visualise hypothesis. You can... Um, do this not just sort of for a building purpose, but for, for, for other purposes as well. So there's a, a European music and archaeology project that reconstructed the soundscapes of um, ancient buildings and sites um, in VR. So you, you had people playing authentic music, musical instruments, and then you had to sort of bounce that sound in different ways and you heard different acoustics and, and just to try and get a sense of what an ancient site would have sounded like, which again, is just so something so different. You can't, you can't get that at the Colosseum because, you know, you, you've got cars and you've got different um, you know, sort of flora and fauna today than you ever had in the past and so so it doesn't just help you to, to visualize buildings but you can it helps you sort of get a much more rich sense of what a place might have been like to experience um, so there's that element there's also a kind of tourism element the vr can now sort of facilitate sort of virtual tourism and, and you know, that's taken off during the pandemic with being able to visit museums virtually but also ancient sites virtually um, and then 
you've also got sort of comparisons between ancient and modern. So there's one VR reconstruction of Rome that sort of shows you the ancient sites alongside the modern one. So you get this kind of comparative aspect that, again, is not possible I mean, if you're just looking at sort of textbook type or, or sort of reading um, about these sites or, or looking at um, sort of static images. So you, you, a lot can be done educationally. And, 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 and these sort of facilities I've just been sort of fleshing out have been used then in the classroom to, to build... Um, a different type of approach to, to trying to learn about ancient material, whether that's in sort of GCSE and A-level um, class civ or, or ancient history or, or Greek and Latin classes or whatever it might be, all the way through to university. Um, and during my undergrad, we, we, we had a wonderful lecturer who was working on a, a sort of second life reconstruction of, um, new second life uh, to reconstruct um, the uh, Crystal Palace, which housed elements of Pompeii. Um, in it. So you can, get, you can do a lot of um, playful things that, that let you um, explore the legacy of the ancient world and how that's been represented differently. Um, so there, that, that's kind of a, a whistle-stop tour of the educational potential of VR, but I think that that's only going to get more embedded as, as the technology um, becomes cheaper, becomes easier to run, and as more companies sort of uh, jump on the... the, 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 the um, utilities here because you can you can do a lot in a short space of time in vr in a way that a video game that's so you can play for hundreds of hours isn't isn't so possible in a classroom quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, I'm interested in what you say there about the role of VR as kind of a replacement. Um, what's the kind of user response to that? Because it has, as you say, kind of taken off. I mean, there were um, earlier kind of rumbles of it. Um, so, for example, I think I'm right in saying you can't now go inside the Great Pyramids at Giza. Um, that what you can now do is have a, a VR experience of what the interior is like in order to preserve the site. Likewise, they're using, I believe, a similar thing for Stonehenge. So. Is there a sense that this is an adequate replacement? Is there kind of pushback from users in that, well, I, you know, I wanted to see the real thing. You know, there's no replacement to being inside the Great Pyramids at Giza. Or are people actually quite content with what they get out of it? That's a really interesting question. I think that you get a sense of the benefits of it when it really provides something unique that you can't get in the real world. So I'm just going to sort of use the example that I'm more familiar with here with, with Virtual Rome, um, that some of the users who were interviewed quite shortly after they, they went through that experience, um, you know, quite, they were very articulate in the way that they sort of said, well, this allows me to see the city in a way I've never seen before and in a way that is impossible to see otherwise. Um, and in so doing, they were able to kind of say, oh, I can now understand the different areas that I experienced when I watched, say, the TV series Rome, or when I was trying to put together my, in my head, you know, how, how people moved about the city, you know, where the Palestine was in relation to the Circus Maximus and, and, and how people might have, um, you know, engaged with, with walking through the streets of Rome. And, and I think that that, that is something that's just not possible because the city's been, been rebuilt, it's been built over, it's been, you know, carved up. And I think that that, that is where you you really see the utility as a complete replacement. I'm not entirely sure 
um, yeah, because I haven't, I haven't had a chance to, to look at sort of people's, comparatively people's experiences. I mean, I think when, again, in the pandemic, when you can't go anywhere, it is a really wonderful um, secondary experience. In terms of actually supplanting that, um, I think it's going to come down to, again, what the technology can offer, because it is incredibly immersive and incredibly rich. I mean, of course, it isn't still the actual thing. <laughs> um, but it, in turn, again, it's, it, it's what it's doing. I mean, if it's just mirroring what is there now, then that's limited. But, you know, you can do so much more in VR than just representing a building. And I think that that, that is where it's going to be interesting. You know, can you, for example, interact with characters? That's what we're looking at in the VR project. You can, can you go and talk to people and, and get a sense of what it might have been like, what ancient people's concerns might have been like? That's where I think the VR storytelling angle can add something more than just a replacement for what you might have seen in person. I know you've been involved in a project reconstructing a VR visit to an oracle. Talk us through that experience and what it aims to achieve. I guess the, the, the starting point for that has to be, what's the history, first of all? Of course. So the, um, the virtual reality project um, that I'm on is, um, as, as you mentioned at the start, an AHRC-funded project led by Professor Estrada now at the University of Bristol. And we have an interdisciplinary team from, from the University of Bristol, from King's College London and Bath. And and that brings together ancient historians, but also computer, human computer interaction scientists, neuroscientists, and psychologists. Um, and we're all aiming to sort of work together to create a virtual reality experience of the ancient Greek or- oracle of Zeus at Dodona in northwest Greece in the um, mid fifth century BCE. So this is actually the oldest oracle of um, oracle in ancient Greece, um, older than Delphi, but it's much less known. Um, there's various, various reasons for that, um, but it has been referenced as far back as um, Homer's Odyssey and Iliad's references there. Um, it's also referenced um, by the um, ancient historian Herodotus, um, and it has references in um, the, the myths behind Jason and the Argo. So there's, um, there's lots of sort of potted references to Dodona in the ancient um, sources, but What's more interesting really today is that um, excavations undertaken over the last couple hundred years have revealed this sort of wealth of um, evidence in, ter- in, in, in the form of lead tablets, which is um, tablets that pilgrims used to either have their questions written on or wrote their own questions on um, that they asked to the oracle. And what this revealed is that the questions were um, incredibly personal and that these are everyday people that traveled all this way to ask their personal question. It's very different from the model of Delphi, which we tend to associate a little bit more with kind of states going and asking questions and, and the kind of wealth that was on display and, and the Pythia in her temple sort of pontificating and, 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 and making sort of very poetic statements. It's, it's quite different from that because what you have instead is basically a site that was very, very rural um, very, it, was, it wasn't built up at all. The monumental architecture that's there, the theatre and other bits and bobs were actually came about, were built much, much later on than the period we're looking at in the mid-5th century BC, BCE. So you've got this very rural sanctuary and you really have just a tree and it's Zeus's sacred tree that supposedly communicated and gave the answers possibly through um, priestesses who were kind of associated with doves, possibly through sound, um, so there's, there's, there's much less known about the process of oracular consultation, but there are so many questions and a few answers. So it's, it, it clearly it was in, in existence for a very long time. It was um, consulted over a, a, a long period of time over, um, with a whole range of questions. So this is a very popular sanctuary um, and gives us a sort of insight into individual concerns in a way that you just don't get at other sanctuaries. And so it's from that kind of material that we're trying to recreate the experience of going to that sanctuary to ask your question, um, in particularly the mid-5th century BCE when there wasn't much um, there, and, and, and how that process worked. Because there are some hypotheses, but there's no absolute concrete, this is exactly how the process worked, this is exactly what happened, this is how people ask their questions, this is what the, the answers they had. And so it's interesting, again, we're going back to what VR can offer us, it can test hypotheses, we can, we can you know, take lots of the evidence we have, we can work it through and, and say this is a, a good, you know, strong hypothesis, let's see how it might play out. So we're doing that, and then we're also trying to add an element of storytelling and, and characterization here by using the ancient evidence, the questions we have, uh, and then constructing characters based off that, based off other elements of um, ancient evidence that we have. So we, we, we can have a diverse um, group of people that 
we know travel there and we can represent that and we can um, have the user join that world and, and hear from these characters, hear their concerns, which were you know, wide ranging, as I said, they covered health, well-being, travel, trade, slavery, and questions about oracles, questions about personal effects. There's a brilliant one that I'll never forget. It's uh, you know, asked about whether the um, someone stole someone's cushions. I mean, it's, you know, it's such a ridiculously mundane question, but, you know, someone traveled all the way to ask that. It showed how you know, how the oracles were used as, uh, uh, and what they meant to people. Um, this question about marriage, about prosperity, about childbirth. Um, so it, it, trying to build a sense of, of the everyday, I think, is, is, is key here. And, and this is what excites people. We're working with schools. This is what excites people when they learn about Dodona because it, you know, it does give you this insight, this kind of empathy with ancient people in a way that it's quite hard to get from other kind of fragmented evidence. So VR just helps us to get that bit closer to sort of bring things together, bring these areas together um, and then sort of see what that experience might have been like for ancient people, but indeed also for modern people. And that's why we're working with neuroscientists and psychologists to try and understand the process of divination and the kind of impact that those sorts of experiences might have had and, and, and can have. Not to be a, a, a downer on, on the process, but I'm interested in the challenges and the potential pitfalls that exist here. I mean, I'm kind of aware of things like, so for example, if you were to go to a World War II era air display, you'll get a little five minute commentary whilst the Battle of Britain Memorial flies or whatever flies overhead. And then if you listen to the conversations that happen down the pub, people will be, who literally only just heard the five minute segment that that went over the Tannoy, are professing to their mates, oh, it's exactly like it was back then, and you sort of think. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Thinking, no, this 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 is what you're seeing in a few little aerobatic loop the loops. It is not a demonstration of what it was like during the Battle of Britain. So, what are the potential pitfalls? How do you kind of inject that more nuanced perspective into the process so that people go away realizing that they've had a flavor of what it's like? but also appreciating that there is much more that they can dig into. But then also from a just a practical perspective of kind of putting this all together, what are the challenges to it all? No, it's, a, it's a, another brilliant question. I think that the key thing here really is framing, and that's, that's the... Um, the crux that holds a lot of this together and it's it's what I spent my um, PhD um, the, the five years that I spent writing my PhD working on really was, was sort of framing in historical fiction because I was really interested in precisely those questions of how people sort of approach the past how they encounter it if they encounter it in fiction what do they take from that um, how is that kind of material presented to them um, and what kind of overall themes do we do we get from that and I think that for contemporary experiences like this, like the VR one and my video games too, the framing is a concern and will always remain so because as we get closer and closer to representing the past in virtual reality, um, I don't just mean VR there, I mean in all kinds of virtual worlds, um, you do have to quite carefully say what is happening because while I said earlier that you know, it, <laughs> it's it's reductive in some ways to say, oh, you know, this fiction is all un- untrue or, or you can't take anything historical from this. It's equally reductive to say, well, you know, yeah, as, as you pointed out, that you just go in and go, oh, well, everything I'm seeing here is is, is fine, is, is historically accurate or authentic or whatever that might mean to individuals. I think the, the framing is crucial because it allows users to set their expectations, to understand what it is they're seeing and what they can take away from that. And you, you see the, this works very well 
when it's carefully and consciously done. And, and you see this in films and in, in, in video games and historical fictions here where, where you get disclaimers at the start where you have a clear differentiation between the world you're playing in and the kind of inspiration that, that lies behind it. So historical notes here from, from historical fictions, but also, you know, the encyclopedias we mentioned earlier. Um, and I think that that, in, in video games, and I think that that, that way of differentiating at least in part between experience and inspiration or background material or source material allows users to move a bit more intuitively through and to, to sort of assess their own impact. I mean, it still doesn't necessarily mean that people will come with a clearly sort of, this is fiction, this is fact, because I think that that is always a fluid and in-conversation area. I've, I've written a, a, an article on, on precisely how historical notes, the very moment that they try and say, this is what happened, and it's different from what you just read, possibly blur the two together, precisely because of the way that they, they facilitate overlap between those, those, um, those imaginative worlds. So framing is important, doesn't necessarily absolutely categorically separate out what did happen with what didn't but i think it's it's that process that's important to consider um and and allow users to consider and reflect on because it, it, the other problem with sort of trying to be too pedantic about it is that especially with the ancient world you actually get into very sort of difficult territory anyway where we can't necessarily say absolutely what did happen so you have to very carefully i think frame the experience as this is a hypothesis based on ancient evidence that in turn is, you know, has to be interpreted, has to be understood, has to be put in context, has to be um, explored or explained or, or contextualised. And I think that, that that is crucial for at least presenting the experience so that users can, can make their own informed decisions because we're all very, very used to moving in and out of these frames of reference, um, whether it's, you know, the based on a true story at the start of a film um, you know the, the kind of cuts at the end of a film where you see the actual characters and uh, the, the actual people that say characters are based on. I always think of the film Scully here because it's quite a, a powerful one where you've just seen this you know, wonderful film and then then you see the actual pilots at the end and it is a, a moment where you have to sort of stop and pinch yourself and think, okay, well that's the real person. Have I just seen something that relates to that? Have I not? You know, but we're very used to moving in and out of those those fictionalized historical and historicized, I might even say, frames. And I think that that. That is the crucial aspect there to 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 getting people to to to, to reflect in the in the way that you would like them to at least. Um, in terms of challenges, again, it's we can't actually reconstruct a world um, that is lost to us. So so again, it's being honest about that. And I think this is again where historical fictions are a great example because history history in themselves kind of by by implication imply that it is possible or that we can just tell objective stories but actually historical fictions are quite interesting this is why they became my sort of main area of interest because they're slightly more upfront honest about the fact that we always just write narratives about the past. Narratives are biased, they're fictionalised, they have slants, they emit certain materials, they gloss over others, they have beginnings, they have ends. You know, it's all that kind of postmodernist approach to history that historical fictions actually kind of reveal um, up front. And, and, and that um, being honest about that, I think, is, is more important than ever when we're, as I said, getting closer and closer to being able to sort of let people reach out and, in inverted commas, touch the past with VR and, and 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 sort of play the past for hundreds of hours. I think those those honesty, um, those those honest frames are are yeah, crucial to that. So, based off the back of that, are there sort of no go areas with these things? Either in terms of yes, okay, what is technologically possible, although constantly those those boundaries are being pushed further and further back, but also kind of what we actually ethically shouldn't be putting into these experiences. Yeah, so I think technically there's definitely um, a few limitations and, and we, we've touched on the nostalgia already, but I think that um, with VR, what's quite interesting is that it's starting to become almost affordable for people to have a VR headset at home, but it's still out there as being kind of you know, quite an investment. And, and I think the, the, um, the creative director of Friday Sunday, which is the company we're working with for the Virtual Reality Oracle project, Said a, a, it just really sort of framed it really nicely. He said that until VR has the kind of Apple iPhone moment, which is where you know at that one moment in time, all the technology and the cost came together, so you provided the user with everything they needed at a price they could afford. Until VR has that moment, it'd be quite hard to have it branch out of what is quite a niche area of interest. Still, um, once that happens, you know, home VR experiences 
there'll be a, a real sort of explosion there probably. Um, so there's limitations there technically in terms of hardware and cost. The gaming, I mean, that's improved exponentially. And I think that the open worlds of recent games proves that. But again, you know, as the hardware develops further, as, as um, your graphical interfaces um, is, is the hardware that supports them develops, you, you can have even greater, richer open worlds. And what's quite interesting is that the, the systems that underpin that are undergoing major changes. And for example, AI is going to become quite an important element of this because even with these massive open worlds today, most of the interactions you have are scripted. So you've still got someone sitting down, writing behind the scenes, the actual interactions you will have, the conversations, the dialogue, the storyline. But once you provide a large enough data set or training set for an AI a machine learning system, that can in turn underpin open worlds to provide actual potentially organic interactions that come out of um, the machine interpreting what could be said in a certain moment rather than it always being pre-scripted. And that's going to become quite an interesting technological advancement because it will turn gaming from something that is, as I said, entirely scripted to something that is kind of emergent. It happens in the moment. Um, and that will, you know, it sort of spiral away because individuals already have a unique experience with the games but it will be even more unique than that and, and, and that's interesting because what we put into those training sets is crucial as with all ai you know it's not it's not a machine learning for us it's a machine interpreting the data we give it so it's got to be a robust and diverse and interesting but but that's all to come i think so there's definitely technical things to it the technical developments that will improve and and have a big impact on, on the way we experience history in, in virtual worlds. But ethically, that's quite a separate issue in some ways, although it is connected. I recently wrote a blog post on how saving games has ethical consequences when thinking about history because they create time loops and, and you can then go over the same period again and again and again. And if time loops re remove consequence, does that mean that we're you know, messing with history in a way that is ethically problematic or can we actually learn from that process? So I think there are mechanics ethics and mechanics do overlap certainly here but the ethic the ethical point is more i think for gaming around content um, and representation so there's questions we have to ask about you know, why do we represent certain eras and not others <clears throat> that's certainly true of the ancient world you know why do we always focus on empire building and an empire collapse um, especially in a post-colonialist sort of mindset today you know why are we focusing on these moments who are we ignoring you know, which, which demographics are we ignoring, which, um, considering the, the, the sort of richness of the ancient world in terms of its um, um, sort of ethnic diversity and in terms of its um, politics, you know, what, what are we focusing on to the exclusion of other areas? Um, what, you know, how are women to be represented um, in these worlds? Because that's a real big touchstone where a large percentage um, of people in the gaming world still retain this kind of quite reductive idea of accuracy, meaning you can't have women in certain areas, even though you absolutely could. Um, so there's, there's learning points to overcome there, where if we want to be ethically true to the past, you have to overcome audience perceptions today, which have been in turn influenced by you know, film and, and historical fictions over the last hundred years that have omitted and whitewashed the past. So, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely not about accuracy, but about the kind of ethics of representation over a very long period of time. You know, what kind of representation are we used to? Why do modern representations cause debates um, uh, sort of you know, across the, the spectrum where people find it difficult to see coloured people in the past or see, you know, white people um, to see women in the past or whatever it might be. And I think that that has um, you know, caused, caused debates, rightly so, because it, it makes us question what are the ethics that we want to see represented in games and, and, and what is the kind of past that we want to see represented? Because it's not an ethically neutral decision um, on the part of developers or on the part of players to, to engage with these things. So there's definitely um, uh, questions to ask there. In terms of no-go areas, I think it's, 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 it's always a good example here. It, is the Holocaust view, it's not really represented in games in terms of actual playability. And I think there's a reason for that. And that's precisely because it's very, it, it seemed to possibly trivialize it. It seemed to sort of gamify it, to, to allow you to be an active agent in it. There's lots of issues there that, that, that don't arise if you see the Holocaust represented on film, for example. So, but then in turn, that means that the Holocaust isn't really there in games in the way that it is in sort of films set in, in, in that period. So there are ethical debates that are different in games than in other media that we need to have in order to represent the past 
sort of in a way that allows for, for that learning we mentioned earlier to take place, that challenges deep-seated representations and ideas of accuracy and authenticity, and it also allows um, people to explore new pasts. So um, in a chapter on, on, on representation of women in ancient history, I sort of argued that the very fact that you can play as a female protagonist in Assassin's Creed Odyssey challenges the types of narrative that we have about epic in the ancient world, which focuses on the male hero, which focuses on a particular way, a particular sort of masculine way of representing the past. And I think that that in turn is a service to the past, not a disservice, and, and, and is a really wonderful way for audiences today to engage and challenge some of these um, approaches that, that have been embedded in the way that um, you know the, the ancient world has been received in, in, in different eras since antiquity itself. So I think that there are several ethical um, areas of, of interest here, uh, everything from representation to to play, and um, these these debates will just continue to happen as new new um, products are released. You know, as, as we pointed out earlier, so so many new games are coming out. So these these debates will continue to be had across social media, and I think tracking them is going to be interesting to see how games in turn do impact society in these different ways. Yeah, I mean, I really hear what you say there about representation. I mean. I'm thinking here about the representation of women and certainly from what I've seen until very recently, any representation of women has been very sexualized, which has a whole ream of problematic um, attachments in itself. Um, and then equally, when you talk about representations of World War II, as you say, the German perspective, full stop, isn't covered. Certainly nobody's, I mean, you'd be a very brave individual to start thinking about how do you put the Holocaust into a video game, that, that's a huge challenge on, on so many levels. But I'm thinking here of Call of Duty, which perspective they take, they always take the allied perspective, never the Axis one. And it creates that kind of good guy versus bad guy narrative, which has its own problems in terms of the nuances of why did people serve in the German Wehrmacht, for example, and all kinds of um, debates that really, you, know, you can have a whole podcast uh, there on, on, in itself. One final question for me, and it, it's about, I could talk to you all day about this, but you know, I, I know you've got other things to do. Um, it's about measuring how and the extent to which people engage with the work that you as a historian do and the impact that your input is having. Because we as historians don't necessarily match what the consumers are after in terms of entertainment. And I'm thinking here, of particularly the early um, Rome, um, Total War and Age of Empires style games where you could find some historical information, but you had to go searching for it. If you see what I mean, you know, there was a sort of little encyclopedia section you read through it and it, it was all about, was there the desire? Um, how much were you prepared to read? How engaging has that piece of writing been? How engaging has it been put together? So how do you... I guess, measure what people are, are taking away from the whole process. Yeah, I think this is a real area of, of, of possible growth. And it's been noted in, in various um, sort of blog posts and chapters recently that the kind of audience impact is, is a crucial area to investigate properly. There's lots of claims made about impact of games, but very little sort of quantitative or even qualitative data that underpins that those sort of claims and, and this is something that on the VR project we're certainly trying to tackle and it's something I'm also tackling on my own so in terms of the VR project we're actually going into schools and museums with the VR um, oracle and we're going to sort of you know, determine what kind of impact it's had through questionnaires through surveys through audience feedback and that will hopefully um, allow us to gauge some level of, of impact through through that kind of um, feedback um, on the experience um, in my other work, I'm definitely trying to make use of this mass amount of uh, this massive, massive amount of data that we have through social media, through videos, um, playthroughs, replays, um, through forums, just to start really scratching the surface of of you know what users have taken away from these games. Um, that would be of interest to historians because again, it's very easy to sort of wipe it away and say, well, it's fiction 
you know, the, all, the, all these are games. I mean, it's, it's worse even than historical novels and films because these, they, as, as, as sort of, as media, they have a kind of heritage and history that, that positions them to be considered seriously to some degree. You know, historical novels uh, have their own history and heritage that position them to be something that is taken seriously. Um, historical film has got, again, its own um, legacy in the form of kind of you know, massive Hollywood blockbusters and, and even more independent films. And, and film as a media itself is, is definitely... Um, it has been taken seriously for its impact. So I think games are unfortunate in the sense that they're both fiction, which is frowned on by historians, and they're games, which is frowned on in turn by a, a sort of more even wider demographic because of the sort of seemingly you know, trivial aspect to it, the, the pure entertainments, the kind of, um, yeah, the fact that these, these are sort of things that we traditionally associate with history, which is narrative temporal sort of you know linear narratives that are set in writing um you know it, it's so far from that even though lots of that is absolutely there they've got to be accommodated into that discourse to begin with and that's a challenge um but by looking at audience perspectives i think as historians we can find some really interesting data about how users have 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 written sort of unprompted about their experiences. And you do, you know, just from the, the work I've already done on this, you, you do get some really interesting insights where um, you know, users explore how Age of Empires was quite foundational in their understanding of historical progress and development and empire building and um, collapse. You know, it's, it's a lot richer than even um, it's sort of the, the kind of the overviews of the game allow i mean it had you know rich historical contextualizing information in the original game that's been rewritten in terms of the definitive edition um that set the scene for every campaign so you know, people were going into this through those frames of reference that we talked about earlier and and you can see people reflecting on this and how important that was for them not just the gaming mechanics but that you also see kind of users presented presenting themselves as historical problem solvers so trying to work out how you know, ancient Rome could have been defeated at different periods of time. or you know, So they are asking interesting counterfactual questions that historians themselves have asked, again, since antiquity. I and mean, you've got the ancient story Livy going, oh, well, we would have always beaten Alexander the Great if he had survived. So, you know, these are, these are famous questions that have been asked throughout history about periods of, uh, uh, um, periods of growth. And, and you now have your know, audiences asking those questions. Whether or not they you know, associate that with historical learning or not is, is something we could tease out in sort of interviews, perhaps, or, or, or you see it perhaps a little bit more with developers when they're interviewed, when they're interviewed about what they think the impact of their game is. That's another way we can measure this. Um, but you do get that insight, I think, um, and it, it provides us with a sense that users are conscious of what they're engaging with. And I think with the Total War franchise, now they've branched off into Warhammer as well. You've got quite a clear division of camps between the kind of historical people, the, 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 the amateur historians that are interested in the historical games they create and the, the, and the, the fantasy enthusiasts. And I think that for the historical crowd, you, you do see their level of engagement. It gets a little bit pedantic at times, but that's quite common in historical fictions where the developers will post something and ask questions and people will be like, oh, but this doesn't match this source and this doesn't match that or all oh, this relates to this. And, and so you do get a real um, sense that people are invested in these as more than just games, but as a means to explore their interests. And if they're int those interests are historical, well, then, then the games are facilitating that very interest. Richard, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I've loved it. Um, my ears, boy, did my ears prick up when I heard the mention that there are companies that hire historians and then farm them out to consult on video games. Definitely looking that one up. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolutely brilliant one. Well, thank you, Zach, so much. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Folks, before you go, do me a favour. Like the episode and hit the subscribe button. It'll take you two seconds but it really helps us to spread the work that we do. You can also leave a comment. We'd love your feedback on the episode, what you liked, and let us know whether you want more of this kind of stuff. If you want it, we're happy to do our best to try and provide it. Obviously, all episodes, and particularly bigger projects like this, take a huge investment of time and resources. If you are able to help us cover the costs so that we can grow and expand our content, you can become a regular supporter via Patreon. That's not for everyone though, so if you want to leave a one-off tip, you can do that via Ko-fi. All the links you need are in the description. And also don't forget that we have a merchandise shop. Boney has put loads of great things together for you, so take a look. Again, the link is in the description. Check out the History Hack bookstore. 
and effectively treat yourself or the History Hack fan in your life. We'll be back in a couple of days. Take care, folks. History Hack out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.